does the Bible really say about, uh, hey, there it is. What does the Bible really say about a variety of, of topics? And we're going to uh, be looking tonight uh, primarily at the issue of um, same-sex, same-gender relationships. Uh, sometimes we use the word homosexuality. Um, we're going to get into that later. Uh, we're going to tangentially look at marriage. But as I got into my notes and got into my work, I, I really wanted to be real careful that we go through a lot of these texts that people use um, or know about or don't understand, et cetera, uh, concerning um, same gender relations uh, as far as what you might find in the Bible. Um, so we're, we'll get mostly into that and then we'll, uh, uh, towards the end, we'll get into a little bit about marriage. I um, also want to say good evening to everyone who's watching online. We're glad that you're here with us, whether you're live or watching later. Uh, welcome. I hope you've got your Bible and I hope you can, uh, I hope you have got your ears turned on because I'm going to go fast. Um, I know that's a shock to everyone here in the, here in the room. A couple of notes. Uh, I hope you saw these flyers at the uh, uh, table where Pam was signing folks in. Archaeology in the Bible. This is going to be a class uh, taught here, uh, well, at, at our South Campus at Brownlee Hall uh, by Dr. Christopher Farrar uh, for, uh, from the congregation Beth Tikva. It's on the Bible and archaeology. I just read through the, the notes about it. It looks fascinating. Uh, you might really be interested in this since you've been doing some Bible study. It's on Tuesday nights. It's uh, only $60 for five sessions starting two weeks from tonight. So you can take a week off next Tuesday and then sign up for this if you'd like to. If, if you are interested, we do have some flyers there at the, at the table and there'll be more information coming out. Uh, through my all church emails too. Mention these books at the beginning of the um, uh, uh, session, Making Sense of the Bible by Adam Hamilton. Um, I am in the footnotes in this just to warn you, just so that you know. Um, despite that, he uses mostly good scholars and, re and resources. Um, he's gotten great reviews around here. Um, there's a, a really good section on the topic that we're dealing with tonight uh, in his book. And, and I've, just, I've just found it a real helpful uh, um, volume to put in people's hands to help folks understand the Bible. So we've got copies of that over there and Pam will be, uh, has graciously agreed to stick around at the end of class if you'd like to buy one of these books. Um, this one is called What is the Bible by Rob Bell. How an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories can transform the way you think and feel about everything. Rob is, he's awesome. He's really good. But he comes way out of all kinds of different directions in terms of how he gets to some of these topics in, in, um, uh, in, in, in the Bible. Uh, but I, other people who've read this have also given it very high reviews. Although I do think we've sold more of Adam's books than we have of Rob's. So if you'd like to buy a lot of Rob's tonight, then I could, I could needle Adam a little bit and tell him that uh, Rob's ahead of him. Um, Adam's one of my best friends. I don't, I don't know Rob personally. I've shaken his hand a couple of times. Um, but Adam's one of, my, one, of, one of my very good buddies. All right, so uh, let's get into it. Uh, let me start with, with uh, a bit of a story. In um, 1974, my family moved to San Francisco. We were living in Southern California uh, in L.A. County, and uh, my father had been a pastor down there for several years at a couple different churches, and he was called to the first Christian church in San Francisco on Debosa Noe. If you know the uh, city at all, that's just a couple of blocks, well, maybe five or six blocks um, north of the Castro District, which in the 1970s was uh, pre predominantly, um, or probably overwhelmingly, maybe 70, 80% of the folks who lived in the Castro were, were gay. Most of them were, were male. 
Um, that's kind of the first time. I, was, I would have been in 74, 15 years old. That was sort of the, fifth, the first time in my life I even heard the term homosexuality or even thought about that. Um, I, of course, there were jokes, stupid, obscene, um, childish, immature jokes that were told in the locker room and that sort of thing with, with, with my buddies. Um, but actually encountering people who identified that way, who lived in community, et cetera, was a, was a brand new thing for me and really, really for, for most of my, my family. The church, uh, and in fact, even my father's views, uh, my mother's especially, um, evolved. My mom very quickly evolved in her understanding and acceptance of, of uh, folks in the homosexual community. And that, when I, so by the time I went off to seminary in 1985, Julie and I moved to East Tennessee. Um, oh, well, 1984 is when I started. In 1985, I took a class uh, called uh, The Bible and Christian Ethics. It was taught by Dr. Fred Norris, PhD from Yale, brilliant guy. Uh, some of you who do some extra reading, if you've ever encountered Stanley Hauerwas's work, Hauerwas is, a, is a, a, an ethicist from Duke, and he's just brilliant. He writes a lot with William Willimon. Um, Hauerwas and Norris were best friends. Dr. Norris died a couple of years ago. Um, just was one of my favorite people of, of all time. Um, he and Nor- uh, Hauerwas were best friends, and, and so I remember going to Dr. Norris in this ethics class, and, and I'd read some of Hauerwas's stuff, I read some other things, and I said, you know, Dr. Norris, I, I don't want to stir. It was a fairly conservative evangelical seminary um, with a very moderate to even liberal faculty. The students were much, much more conservative than the faculty. Um, I went to Dr. Norris and said, you know, I'm from San Francisco. This is an issue in my family. This is an issue. Uh, the issue of homosexuality is an issue in my family. It's an issue in my dad's church. Um, the church has begun to welcome um, uh, gay and lesbian members fully and openly. Um, they didn't sort of do it officially. They just kind of started doing it. Um, and I, I want to have a better understanding from the biblical viewpoint of what that means for us. I'm, I'm going to write a paper on, on homosexuality. He said, please do. Uh, I, I read, I, I read uh, Malcolm Boyd. Anybody know any Malcolm Boyd writings? He wrote a book back in the 60s called uh, uh, Are You Running With Me, Jesus? Uh, brilliant book. One of the first really um, can you be gay and be Christian kind of uh, books that was at least published in the mainstream. Read a lot, quite, did quite a bit of other work. And a lot of what's going to come out tonight is stuff I did back in 1985 in some of the notes that I have here. And I, I, I distinctly remember, we're going to get back to this in a, uh, a little later in the class tonight. I, I recall Dr. Norris saying to me when I went to him about my paper and what I was, was going to write on, him saying, if the science can ever demonstrate without doubt that folks of, of back then we would have said homosexual, of homosexual um, uh, orientation are born that way in the same way that I was born a heterosexual. And didn't, I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't choose that. I didn't turn 13 and go, today I'll be a heterosexual male. I mean, I just, that's what, who I am. Um, uh, Dr. Norris said, if it can be shown, and there were studies starting to emerge back then, and it had been around before, starting to emerge that this isn't a choice. It's not a lifestyle option. Today I'm going to have this option for my lifestyle, that people are born this way. Um, if it can be cho- shown that, then the majority of the biblical texts don't apply. I, I, just, I, I was like, I think you just wrote my paper, Dr. Norris. I mean, that's, if that's so, then they, they truly don't. Well, I'm going to get to some specifics about that. But I, I'm telling you all that just so that you know um, my story, my background, how I, how I began to encounter this. Uh, another great story, and, and I may, you may have heard me tell this before. I told it to a leadership uh, worship service a, uh, a couple of weeks ago. 
with the board leaders and some other folks. Uh, comes from right around 1975, I, so now I'm maybe 16 years old at this point, and we're driving home from church, and there's a gay couple over in the corner, two men, uh, they're holding hands, and, and then they, they exchanged a brief quick kiss. Nothing obnoxious, nothing, nothing, you know, at all. If it was a man and a woman, you wouldn't even think about it. But in 1975, stupid obnoxious Glenn in the back seat with his uh, two sisters, my sister, my brother David in the front seat, sitting between my mom and dad. I said, and I'm embarrassed to say this, I said, Dad, stop the car. I'll go beat those guys up. I'll take care of this. That's, that's, that's obscene. My mother immediately turned around from the front seat. Now, some of you who are moms, or do you remember when your mom would do that? Did it ever happen to you? Yeah, yeah. She turns around. She said, don't you ever talk like that again. Do you know my aide? My mom was a kindergarten teacher. Do you know my aide, Richard? I said, yeah, yes, I do. He happens to be gay, and the love he has with his partner is everybody as real as the love your father and I have. I don't want to hear that ever again come, come out of your mouth. I told that story in 2013 in front of 5,000 people at the General Assembly of the Disciples of Christ denomination in Orlando, Florida, when the denomination that I'm ordained in was going to vote on the full inclusion and acceptance of LGBTQ folks into the ministry, in either to the paid professional ministry or as servants in the, in the church, as volunteers, etc. So I told that story, and, and then I said, my mom's been here for 40 years. Can we catch up to my mom? And she was sitting just off to my right on the, on the front row. Um, it's one of the only few times I've gotten applause in the, in the middle of a sermon. Although about 10% of the crowd that was there that night, I know it's about 10% because I believe I got about 500 emails um, telling me how wrong I was, how I was leading the church into to disaster and blah, blah, blah. Um, <clears throat> We took the vote uh, four days later, and it passed by about 90, 90% to 10%. Overwhelmingly was, was, was voted in. <clears throat> so I, I, I sell that as, as part of letting you know my own history, my own experience, uh, what I learned from my mom and dad from watching them, what I've learned from a, a variety of other folks. And so we're, gonna, we're going to... Um, uh, also try, I'm going to try real hard. I can, I can be uh, kind of snarky and I don't want to be snarky. I don't want to be uh, sounding like I'm, I'm putting down our friends in um, uh, faith communities that are more traditional. Um, and and it's, uh, I want to understand that they're in a different place maybe than many of us are in the room, mostly. Um, and, and, and respect that. But by the same token, uh, I'm going to be pretty strong and forceful because I, I, I believe this is every bit as important as, as the issue of racism. Uh, that it's, it's really time to stop even having to worry about whether or not this is, should be a discussion, but to really put it on the forefront of, of uh, at least in the church, um, and create churches that are open and welcoming. All right, um, let's go to the first slide. Stuart, if you would, please. Can you see that okay? That's a book called Changing Our Mind by David Gushy. I would say it is the best book uh, out there available for normal people like us. Um, there's some really deep, dense, um, uh, scholarly, theolo heavily, heavily theological scholarly books uh, written primarily to scholars, uh, to people who have degrees from seminaries and things. This is written to everyday folks. In fact, I'm following his outline from the middle, middle section of the book uh, for tonight's presentation. Um, he is, I, I believe he was a, a Baptist for a long time. Um, 
and, and has actually moved dramatically from saying no, LGBTQ persons are not welcomed and included in the church and cannot be Christian to now saying, oh no, they can. He did a, an unbelievably um, a rich and exhaustive study. You're going to get some of his scholarship tonight. Uh, a lot of the stuff you're going to hear from me tonight is not just my own story, but is from uh, Dr. Gushy. So I'd, I would highly uh, recommend that book if, if you're wanting to get into this a little bit more. All right, let's go to the next slide. Texts of Terror. Um, the, the, just leave it up there for a minute, Stuart. One of the, the um, interesting things is the primary text I heard when I was in high school, uh, Julie and I, where, where'd Julie go? There she is. Julie and I went to a very conservative uh, uh, high school sponsored by the Assembly of God Church. And, and um, uh, tremendous experience there. Some of the teachers are great people. I still communicate with some of our high school friends and all. Um, but in that school and in some other places in high school, the number one text quoted about why homosexuality was wrong was what? Say again. Uh, not Leviticus, no. Nope. Sodom and Gomorrah. Put the next slide up, Stuart. <clears throat> Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Those are the words of Lot. There are, there's a gang of men who have come. There are these strange visitors at Lot's house, angels we might say, um, who have come to see Lot and there's this gang of men who've gathered outside the house and they're demanding that Lot, Lot let these men have the, the guests whoever they might be, these two men that are, that are guests at his house. They're demanding they, co they come out to him. They want, they want to essentially gang rape them. Um, <laughs> Mr. Gushy gets, gets into a little more detail than that, but that's essentially what they want to do is gang rape them. Um, Lot, in response, says this. Now, I, I think I was in seminary before I even bothered to read the whole story. What is Lot saying? No, don't rape these guys rape my daughters. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Put the next slide up there, Stuart. There's another story in Judges 19 that's very, very similar to the one in Genesis. In fact, a couple of scholars I looked at today said they think they both have the same origin. They just got moved to different places in the Bible and the names were changed, etc. But it's this almost exact same offer. Here are my virgin uh, daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Ravish them and do whatever you want to them. So, that the, so the question becomes, the, the, question, the first question that has to be asked is, if we're going to use these texts as proof that, that uh, same-sex behavior is inappropriate, are we then accepting this offer as appropriate? I don't, the answer is no, of course not. Of, of course not. And in fact, when you look at the full story, and I hope, I hope you read um, uh, Genesis 19, when you look at all Genesis 19, if you look at its parallel story, similar story in Judges 19, what you find is not anything about same-sex behavior, but about violence and domination. This was a way, especially in antiquity, well, and frankly, it can be true today. It's not the sex act that is important. That's just the act. What it is about is about violence, domination, and humiliation. Um, what's a common fear for uh, someone who goes to prison and is in prison for a long time? It's rape. It's rape. It's about 
and rape is not about sex, it's about power, domination, and humiliation. That's what these stories are dealing with. They are essentially at their, at their, at their baseline, an illustration of God's, of what God's holiness looks like in comparison to humanity's wretchedness at its worst. Here's poor Lot. Uh, I shouldn't even say poor Lot. Uh, you know, he, offering his daughters. I mean, you just, how does one possibly even do such a thing and think that that's an acceptable option or, or choice? It just, it just sim- simply is not. Um, <clears throat> uh, oh, by the way, uh, the word sodomy, um, sometimes um, folks in, in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were referred to as sodomites. That word didn't get developed until 1,100 years uh, after the time of Jesus. So that wasn't even part of the conversation around this story for probably, well, the Genesis story is probably finalized in, in 500 B.C. So for 15, 1,600 years, no one was talking about the sin of sodomy. Um, some, some, I forget the name of the person who, who brought that into the, into the common um, uh, vernacular. All right, the next slide. Oops, that's one too many. Go back, I need, um, I need Ezekiel 16. There it is. Um, there are 17 other mentions of Sodom and or Gomorrah throughout the Bible. 17 mentions. Of those 17, only two can even remotely be connected to same-sex behavior. The other 15 sound like this one from Ezekiel 16:49. So here's Ezekiel. He's a prophet. I was talking with Steve Mushrush at the beginning. Um, you got to kind of be loopy to understand Ezekiel. He's just this wild, crazy dreamer, and it makes you wonder um, if there was some marijuana in his background or something. Um, I don't really mean that. Just erase that from the tape. Uh, uh, Ezekiel 16, 49. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous eed, but did not aid the poor and needy. Do you, do you, do you, see, the, do you see the point? The other 14 that are similar to this say those kinds of things. And, and, and by the way, Sodom and Gomorrah, do you remember me using the phrase or the term etiology a couple of weeks ago? And etiology is a story to explain why things are the way they are. So the, the, there's some etiological, uh, um, uh, there, there is an etiological sense to the Sodom and Gomorrah story trying to explain what happened uh, in that plain around where the Dead Sea is. Well, these people were so bad and so terrible that that's, that's why God wiped them out and that's why there's, there's this, uh, the land is salty and the land is no good for growing things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the Dead Sea is, is there. Um, there. There is no, uh, speaking of archaeology, there is little or no evidence, archaeologically speaking, of two cities ever existing uh, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, they just become uh, this example of depravity and human depravity at, at its worst. Uh, so there, there's Ezekiel essentially saying, essentially saying their biggest sin was their pride, their fil- failure to care for those who are needy. Now, now go to Jude 7. <clears throat> so likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which in the same manner as they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust. Um, uh, do, do, if, if you've got that 
text open. Jude's, Jude's kind of a weird, teeny, tiny little book, like with like what, 18 verses or whatever it is. Um, if you can find Jude, somebody get there, and, and especially if you've got a King James version or if we've got a new international version. Um, I see a couple of folks on your phones. So some of those phone apps can, can uh, give you a host of, of versions. I'm curious about how uh, they, they uh, use or interpret these words here, especially indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust. Anybody got a King James version? Turn to it, right? Ed, why don't you read, read it out real loud for me? Uh, seven. Seven. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, uh, a fornication and going after strange flesh. Anybody, that, thank you. Um, anybody have something different? Do we have a new international version? Is there a new, new international? Keep that phrase, strange flesh, in mind. Anybody got a, a new international version? Anybody got one? Okay. Um, here's what this text is about. Sex with angels. It's a reference to the book of Enoch. Don't try to look up the book of Enoch because it's, it's not in, it, well, unless you've got the pseudopigrapha books or the apocryphal books in the middle between the Old and New Testament. Um, the book of Enoch talks about uh, angels and having sex with, with um, uh, humans. And, 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 the, and actually there is a section in um, Genesis 6, 1 to 4. Uh, remember I, I, I said on Sunday, if you heard my sermon on Sunday, I compared Queen Jezebel to Queen Circe in the Game of Thrones. Um, you know, sex with angels kind of sounds like a Game of Thrones type thing. Um, but if you look at Genesis 6, 1 to 4, you'll see there's a note there about angels having sex with, with human, human win, w- women. What, what this text and 2 Peter 2, 6 through 7 is referring to is not same-sex behavior, but this strange, weird, unusual uh, sex with angels, not something we want you folks to pursue. It's essentially what uh, Jude and Peter is, is commenting on. Uh, um, uh, it, is, it is not about any of that stuff at all. So even, even the two texts that mention Sodom and Gomorrah in the New Testament are not related to same-sex behavior at all. They're really referenced back to bo- the book of Enoch and Genesis chap- chapter 6. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, Leviticus 18.22 should be our, our next one. If a man lies with a male, oops, there it is. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. All right, I want to tell you a little bit about this word abomination um, before we move on to Leviticus uh, 20. Uh, um, The word in Hebrew is tovah, tovah. It appears 117 times in the Old Testament. 111 of those are not about same-sex behavior. And in fact, after these few verses in Leviticus, we're going to look at the next one in a moment. After these few verses in in Leviticus, it never again, the idea of same-sex behavior never again appears at all in in the Old Testament. Not once. Not once is it referenced or discussed or talked about or or brought up. Um, What's fascinating is all the other things that are tovah. Do you know some of these things? Pork. Rabbit, shellfish, these are things you cannot eat, for they are an abomination. We were in the Holy Land back in um, uh, November. I think it was our first day in the Holy Land. It might have been our second day at, at the Sea of Galilee. And we're, we're going through uh, the um, buffet, the food. 
you, you, let's just say you don't go to the Holy Land for the food, right? The Holy Land folks, we, this, you don't go for the food. But I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm through the line with one, one of the persons on her trip, and, and she says, wow, that looks like pulled pork. That looks good, doesn't it? And I said, I'm going to guess it's not pulled pork. <laughs> sure enough, it was pulled, it was pulled chicken. Um, those, are, those things are an abomination. So, you know, one of the things that I say to my friends when I get into conversation with folks like this is, you know, is, do you eat pork? Oh, of course I do. Well, do you eat rabbit? Well, I, maybe not. I don't know. Um, but once in a while, sure. Do you, do you eat shellfish? Yeah, I, I love a, re- a really good um, uh, uh, shrimp, shrimp grilled on the, on, on the grill and thrown into a salad or a soup or something. Of course. Well, then the response becomes, well, we're no longer under the Old Testament law because in Jesus, the law has passed away, etc. Uh, of course, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, by the way. Um, so if that's true, though, if we don't have to pay attention to those, why do we get these other two verses from Leviticus brought up? You, you kind of can't have it both ways is sort of the thing. You just can't have it both ways. Either we're going we're either gonna to be normative for us or they're, or they're not. And, and I, I do want to be, well, I'll hold off on that statement for just a minute. Let's go to the next slide. And we'll, we'll deal with another issue that's here in the text. If a man, same thing, basically, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So two things. What's the sin? What's the specific sin being referenced here? What is it that's wrong? Put your Bible scholar hat on. All of you can become good interpreters. I'm going to give you a hint. If a man lies with a male as with a woman... What, what's wrong? Sally knows. I told Sally earlier today. What's wrong? You're acting like a woman. And that's the sin that's being named. That's the way it's described. If you, if you take it from a, I'll throw some fancy words out here, an exegetical, theological, and hermeneutical understanding, the, the exegesis, which is a scientific study of a text, the, hermeneut, the hermeneut, um, hermeneutical approach is interpretation of it. The theology, what's the theology underneath it? The theology that's underneath this particular text is that women are not what men want to be like. They, in fact, we're going to get into this a little bit more in some New Testament texts. We look at, look at those. That's the biggest problem is that a man might act like a woman. That's the abomination. Now, the second thing I want you to see, what's the penalty? Again, when I have a conversation with my friends about this text and these texts, what is it, what is it I, say, I say to them? Do you believe in the death penalty for same-sex behavior? Well, of course not. Why? And I'm serious. You know, why not? If it's that clear. One of the answers, by the way, might be some of the other things that um, Leviticus and Deuteronomy lists as uh, punishable by death. Adultery, same-sex behavior, child sacrifice, cursing your parents, incest, becoming a medium or a wizard, blasphemy, murder, Touching Mount Sinai while the law is being given from God. Kidnapping, and there's another half a dozen or so on, on that list. Uh, it would be hard, ex- with the exception of murder, it would be pretty hard to argue, well, maybe child sacrifice too, it'd be pretty hard to argue for the rest that death penalty is, is warranted. W- would it not? I mean, just, there just doesn't make any sense that you would even, even uh, that we would even think of that. In fact, there's a quite a bit of discussion um, about whether or not any of those uh, penalties were ever exacted. 
whether that's actually true or not. So there's a couple of things going on here. What the Levitical authors are trying to do is essentially say, we are Israelites. We are Hebrews. We, uh, we, we were once wanderers in a foreign land, and now we've, we've come out of that land. We were strangers there. We've come to our homeland. This is who we are. We're, sh- we're being shaped by this. In fact, Leviticus and Deuteronomy both have a ton of texts about welcoming the stranger, welcoming the, uh, the, um, the refugee, welcoming the homeless, caring for the poor. There's a lot of that stuff. That's part of their identity, okay? But a lot of these texts, what scholars think, and I tend to agree with, most, with them most of the time, what scholars think is, this is the, the Levitical code, it's what this, this is referred to as, what the Levitical code is trying to say is, we're Israelites, we're not like those Egyptians. And, and they might have same-sex stuff going on, but we don't do that. We're Israelites, and we're not like those Canaanites who eat shellfish. Can you imagine such a thing? Who would eat the spiders of the sea? Who would eat that, Right? That's, uh, somebody, somebody said that about lobsters. I saw, where did I see that in the New York Times the other day? About, why would you eat lobsters? They eat the trash of the sea and then, you, uh, anyway. Um, I'm not a lobster fan, as you can tell. But you see, you see what's happening here? We don't behave like those people do. We don't behave like those people do. They eat all that stuff. That's an abomination. They're saying, this is who we are. And so it's a way, it was a way for them to shape their community. There's another one that says, well, you should never eat a calf that's been boiled in its mother's milk. That's probably what the Philistines did. Now, I haven't thought about having a calf that's been boiled in its mother's milk. I don't think I'm going to do that. But it's, you see, culturally, they were trying to establish themselves as, as being set apart from these, these other folks. And so it, it's sort of like, um, if, if you're, this is a silly example, but maybe it'll work. If you're a Buckeye fan and you love the Buckeyes, you're not going to go to the Michigan game at the shoe wearing um, maize and blue, right? Probably not. I mean, hopefully people would be nice to you uh, to a certain degree, but you're probably not going to do that. If, if, if you're, if, if you're uh, um, well, that's enough of an illustration. That's, 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 what's, that's really kind of at a deeper, much more um, uh, uh, serious level. That's essentially what the Levitical uh, Code is trying to do. Uh, Deuteronomy literally means deutero, means second. Um, namas in, uh, it means law. It's the second giving of the law. And so a lot of these, these things are reinforced in the book of Deuteronomy. There's some new stuff that, that appears there too. Uh, um, um, so, oh, this is what I wanted to say. Now, having said all this, I want to be really, really clear that there is a long tradition of rabbinical scholarship that treats these texts with absolute seriousness. And so I I don't want you to think I'm just sort of pushing them aside or pretending like they're, they're no big deal. In the rabbinical tradition, it would just make no sense to them in this, the rabbinical scholarly tradition, to treat these texts as though they're literal, as though somehow this is a law that can be picked up and carried and dropped in, into our cultural, uh, uh, in our current culture. It would just not be, in fact, there's lots of writings about what it could have meant then and what it means now and what it might mean later and, and all this stuff. And they love doing all that. You, you, know, you, you know the story about rabbis. How do you answer a question? If, if, if you ask a rabbi a question, what does he do? What does he or she do? To ask you a question, yeah. So you can never, you just, just love to, to do all that and, and really, really get going into it. Um, I remember having, having dinner with a good friend of mine in, in um, Kansas City named Art Nemetov, who's from here in Columbus. Uh, he's the, the uh, senior rabbi at, at Congregation 
oh, I just went blank. Uh, he, he oversees a congregation, a Jewish congregation in, in uh, uh, Kansas City. A t- terrific guy. And, and we got into a conversation about, about stuff, and, and, and he, said, he said to me, what's, what's the central part of your, your religion, of your Christianity? What would you identify? And I would say the suffering, I said the suffering Christ. He said, Christians always say that. Have you considered? And then we had this marvelous conversation. I was learning from this rabbi about my own views, things I didn't know that were built into it. Uh, it was really fun. So I want you to, I, I want to be really clear that there's this whole host of, of scholarship that exists today of wondering all these different kinds of things um, uh, about, about the texts themselves. All right. Uh, let's, let's roll along here to the next one. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Now we're going to the Bible text, or the New Testament text. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, etc. There's a parallel verse in uh, 1 Timothy 1.10. 1 Corinthians was, was uh, most likely, I mean, everyone believes that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter uh, to the church in Corinth. Um, the church in Corinth is going through serious issues. They got major mega problems in their congregation. Um, one problem, for example, I shared this in the communion table, at the communion table at the South Campus, um, 10 o'clock service on a Sunday a few, few weeks ago. Um, one of the issues is they actually took, uh, the, 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 for them the Lord's Supper wasn't uh, a little piece of bread and, and some juice. For them it was bread and wine and, and, and vegetables and salads and, and meats and cheeses and all kinds of things. It was a celebratory, the whole community would come together. And that, probably this would have been a large church in antiquity. Probably was never more than uh, one or two hundred members at most. And in fact, they didn't even have an idea of membership in, the, in those days. You were, you were baptized and you were part of the community. Um, what was ha- so what would happen is they'd gather on Sunday and they'd have their, their, their time of worship. And most of the time what, what it would be is they would gather, they'd sing a hymn, they'd offer a prayer, they'd read a bit of scripture, maybe remember something Jesus said. And by the way, scripture for them would have been the Old Testament. Uh, remember something that Jesus said in his teach in his teaching, somebody would, would give a, uh, not necessarily a sermon, but a talk or what it would help to, would teach about that. And then, so that's 45 minutes to an hour. Then they'd have this big celebratory Lord's Supper uh, where they would break the bread and the wine, all that, but then enjoy a meal. What was happening was oftentimes the poorest of the poor who were a part of the community, of the church community, couldn't get there in time for the food. And so by the time they got there, not only was the service over, but the rich folks who have the ability to, to not work on a Sunday and could go to church and, and hang out with their friends, they would eat all the food and drink all of the good wine. It's like the, the poor folks would get there and there'd be nothing left but box wine and some leftover cheeseburgers or something. Uh, um, thank you for laughing. That was a joke. Um, but you see, do you see the point? And so that's one of the things that Paul is furious about is that you're creating an in and out group. You're, you're letting the, the rich, powerful people run things. We got to, everyone's got to, everyone's welcome at the table or no one is. He does, that's a paraphrase from me. That's essentially what he's saying. So they've got that issue. They've got the issue of sexual immorality. People are sleeping around with sleeping around and sleeping around and sleeping around. The specific one he names, how would you like to be this person named and end up in the Bible? Um, there's a man who is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. That's dealt with in the Corinthian church. So just keep that in mind. There's a host of other things going on in in Corinth. So Paul writes to them, 
And he uses this list. Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, etc. This is a very common rhetorical tool in the ancient Near East in the time of Paul. Very, very common. You would find this in non-Christian writings. In fact, a ton of this in non-Christian writings. Where here's a list of things that you know you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be practicing, you shouldn't be doing. This is, this is, this is just a, a list. So that's, so that's the first thing I want you to know. Paul's dealing with very serious problems in the church, number one. Number two, he's borrowing a common rhetorical device. to kind of. In fact, if you look at um, 1 Timothy 1.10, it's a real similar kind of list. By the way, just a little insight. Um, the author of 1 Timothy 1.10, according to traditional understanding, is the Apostle Paul. It's probably not. It might have been one of Paul's disciples. Um, in fact, I, I read something the other day, who, somebody who thinks Paul was too liberal, and so he was much more conservative, and he wrote things like this to Timothy, and it's reflected in some of the other things that are sort of, sort of uh, neo-Paul, as, as it were. Um, that doesn't excite you. That, that kind of stuff really excites me. I think it's fun to f- discover things like that. So do you see what I'm saying? There would be these lists. There would be these lists of, of, of things that, that, that would be common in a, in a presentation. The Stoics love these kinds of lists where they would you know, don't do these kind of behaviors. Okay? Now, let's look at some of the specific things uh, that are mentioned here. Um, go to the, oh well, you, know, you see the word um, uh, sodomite. Alright? Go to the next um, slide. There, there's the, the word for sodomite comes, is, is produced by the Greek words malakoi and arsenokoitai. I can never say it. Two years of Greek. Arsenokoitai. I think that's how you say it. Arsenokoitai. Those two words are, ne- are next to each other. Um, the word malakoi uh, sometimes gets translated. In a, it, well, if we had all those translations, we could look at it. But it's, it literally means soft. It appears two other times in the New Testament, and both of those times it's describing fabric. What some folks think, perhaps, is that this is again a put down of males behaving like women. Now, I don't buy that one, by the way. I think it just means soft. <clears throat> but it doesn't necessarily have the sexual connotation. Uh, that we that we put on top of it, or has been, has been put on top of it by by later um, uh, translations. Now go to the next one. Here's that crazy word, arsenokotai. This word um, most likely is referring to the kind of behavior on the list that that are up there. That this sort of thing. I mean, imagine how different. Um, the experience would be for for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters if the Bible instead of saying sodomites or as some one one uh, uh, translation I looked at today said uh, I think it said homosexual perverts which is just an uh, that that's an abominable translation um, another one said per, just perverts um, I'm not going to flip to it real quick quickly enough oh here it is um, uh, the Geneva Bible in 1587 buggers. I'll let you figure that one out. Um, uh, the brutal sodomites, homosexuals, pervert, homosexual perverts, homosexual offenders, practicing homosexuals. Just imagine how different those texts would read if, it said, if instead of it saying perverts or sodomites or practicing homosexuals, if it said sex traffickers, sexual exploiters, sexual predators, pimps. These are 
two completely different categories, number one. Number two, the idea of, a, of, a, of homosexuality did not exist in antiquity. If we were to go back in time and sit down and talk to the Apostle Paul and sit down and talk to Moses or whoever wrote the book of Leviticus, probably a bunch of priests, sit down and talk to them about, now, who are the homosexuals in your community? They would look at us like, what are you talking about? That was not, that was not part of their practice. They just, didn't, they just didn't understand that idea that there might be a homosexuality. In fact, that term is only about, what, 170 years old. So it's only after that term gets introduced into our understanding in, in more or less modernity that it then gets put back into the Bible when it was never there in the first place. If somebody comes up to you and says, well, you know, the Bible says this about homosexuals. No, it doesn't. It doesn't know about homosexuality. Same-sex behavior, yes. I, I, hope that, I hope I'm making that. Uh, that might sound like I'm just making a fine point here, but it's an extraordinarily important point. What, what this word arsenokoitai refers to primarily is, primarily, wealthy, powerful, privileged men who want to have a wide variety of sexual partners and experiences. That's what it's talking about. And it's, it's talking about dominance. Remember what I said before about Lot? Dominance, power, and humiliation. That's what's primarily what Paul is, is arguing uh, against here. <clears throat> Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites. No, sex traffickers. Can you make an excuse for sex trafficking? Can, can you make an excuse for, for, for pimping? Can, can you make an excuse for, for, for sexual exploiters, for, for predators, for pimps of, of any kind? Abs absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, um, so in that light, then, the majority of these texts, you can see, have nothing to do with the issue that we, we're wrestling with in our society. They, they really don't connect to the stuff that we're talking about. However, there are a couple more, and I, hopefully you looked at Genesis uh, 1 and 2, or we, we have a little bit throughout this study. Um, go to the next slide, uh, Stuart. It should be Genesis 2.24. Therefore, man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one, <clears throat> they become one flesh. The word to get in front of you again is etiology. This is the Genesis storyteller trying to explain the origin of marriage. Remember, um, if it, one of the things the Genesis storyteller uh, tries to explain is um, why snakes crawl on their belly. Right? Because the serpent was the wiliest of the creatures in, in the Garden of Eden, and, and it was the serpent who, who talked Eve into, into eating the fruit. By the way, it doesn't say apple, it just says fruit. Um, into eating the fruit, and she shares it with Adam, and all, all that stuff. And as a result, the snake is forced to crawl on its belly for the, for the rest of its, its life. That's, that's an etiology, it's something that explains origin. What the Genesis writers are doing here is they're trying to simply explain the origin of marriage, and why marriage exists, and why it's there, and why men and women are drawn together and, and why, why that is, is, is part of, um, uh, of our society and our, of our culture. What does Genesis not know that we know? This is where I was going with the scientific conversation with Dr. Norris in 1985. Depending on which study you read, between 2 and 5% of humans are born with the inclination, is that the right word? Are, are born with the orientation, sorry, that's a better word, orientation of homosexuality, 2 to 5%. 
if that's true, and there's tons of studies, you can find them, they're out there. If that's true, and I believe it is, I, I, I don't just, that's not a faith statement, that's a fact statement. If that's true, then that doesn't apply to Genesis, then Genesis 2.24 doesn't apply to same-gender marriages. Because the writers of this story of Genesis, and uh, they probably compiled it around 500 B.C., they have no idea about that. They have no knowledge whatsoever. So therefore, that affects the reason why <clears throat> it doesn't, because it, it doesn't, this is the text. I had a conversation with somebody who visited our church about two months ago, and, and they quoted Genesis 2.24 to me. And, and then the next one they quoted to me was this one. Go up to the next text. Stuart, Matthew 19. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. Jesus in this text, uh, chapter 19, also says, he also quotes the Genesis text, uh, you know, uh, marriage between a man and a woman. And, and that becomes a text that, that uh, my friends and maybe some of yours um, in, in more fundamentalist churches will say, well, Jesus affirms what Genesis says uh, right there. What Jesus is doing, though, here in, in Matthew 19 is dealing with a serious problem within the community that deals with men behaving badly. Divorce was becoming too easy. There's a text in the Old Testament that says if a man decides he doesn't want his wife around, he can write her a note. Do you, do you remember the story of Joseph? Remember the story of Joseph? And him, him finding out that his wife was pregnant? What did Joseph say? It's recorded in the, in the, in the Gospels. He said, I'll, send, I'll give her a note and send her away quietly. Now, he wasn't going to make a big thing about it. He was just going to, that's a reference to this text. Uh, once you were betrothed, you were more, more or less legally married. It's, you could just write your wife, uh, I, Julie, I, that was a marvelous steak salad, but it should have been larger. Uh, here's a note. You're gone. We, she made a steak salad tonight. Um, I, what, and, and what does that do? What does that do? It rips apart families. It leaves children orphaned. It puts women in dire straits. If a woman doesn't, in antiquity, in, in, in the ancient Near East, doesn't have a husband, doesn't have a family, doesn't have a place to live, what options does she have for survival? Two, prostitution or slavery. That's all she's got. Not, not, nothing else. And so Jesus is essentially saying, when he says this, he's not trying to make this really hard, strict rule about divorce. What he's saying is, guys, this is inappropriate. This doesn't work. It is fascinating to me how the more acceptable divorce has become in our culture, the less and less and less people quote this. There was a famous preacher in Atlanta when we were there who taught that you could not be a preacher, you could not be a leader in the church if you were divorced. And you especially couldn't be one if you were divorced and remarried. That was the worst possible thing you could do. Constant, 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 constant. Um, one of the last years we were there, his wife filed for divorce. Now he fought her and he fought her and he fought her and he fought her and he finally gave in. The headline in the, in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution after the divorce was final was this famous preacher saying, we have to practice forgiveness. <laughs> What a, what a nice thing. Okay, yes, perhaps that could have informed other sermons um, that were preached prior, prior to that. Um, what Jesus is dealing with is a patriarchal culture that is allowing divorce to be just too easy for men. And he's trying to stop that. All right, now here's the, here's the toughest verse. And we'll, I'll, I'll leave some time for, for questions. Romans 1, 26 to 27. 
their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also the men giving up intercourse with women. Now, that obviously sounds pretty clear. Sounds very clear. But the, the words that are used here and, the, and the, um, the references that Paul is doing, again, this is a, another one of those ethical lists. He's got all these sins he lists, all these sins. And by the way, if you read Romans 1, ain't nobody that can say they never committed any of these things. Um, we just like to pick on this one because it's, more, it's, it's, it's a more fascinating issue. Um, what, he's, what, he, what he's essentially saying is because, because of your behavior, uh, your use of power, you are outside of, of the community of faith. And again, when we think of faith, we're going to blend faith with science. Remember when I said a minute ago, 2 to 5 percent, depending on which study you read, says that 2 to 5 percent are born with the orientation of homosexuality. About, about 2 to 5 percent. If that's true, and it is, then in a technical sense, this one doesn't apply. Do you remember what happened to Galileo and Copernicus when they had the audacity to suggest that the sun didn't revolve around the earth? Do, do you remember how much trouble they got in? Why? Because if you read the Bible and you take the Bible literally, it's a flat earth. Jesus even says, I'm going to send you out to all, the four corners of the earth. Well, you don't have corners on a globe, do you? No, it's, that's, it's a reference to a, to a flat earth. The way the Bible is described, in fact, in Genesis chapter 1, is as though it is this large, flat disk with edges, and it's covered by a hard shell dome. You ever heard the word firmament? The word firmament in, from Hebrew means hard shell dome. And then this hard shell dome has windows that open up. That's how the rain gets in. And the rain comes up from underneath the, this flat disk. If you read Genesis 1 and you read Genesis 2 and you take it literally, you're going to have to have a, wor a world that was created in six literal days, right? Six days. The, the earth can't be more than 6,000 years old and it has to be flat. Now, science has said, I think, different. Uh, maybe we have some flat earth people here. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, th that's not true. If, if you, uh, I'll talk to you later. What we have to do is allow science to inform faith. So when we look at the Genesis texts, I've said this before in a sermon, it's not a scientific text. It's not trying to explain. It's Genesis chapter 1 is one of the most beautiful pieces of theological poetry, in my opinion, ever written. It's a beautiful description of God's care and nurture for the world. And remember how I got, you got it's good, it's good, it's good. And on day 6, when, he, when God creates male and female in God's image, they are very good. You know, it's beautiful. It's, it's written in a time of exile. It's a way of saying to the Jews in exile, remember, this is how God created the world, and God made you very good. We're going we're gonna to survive this. It's a, it's a, it's a text of hope. It's not science. And so, the fa you know, faith can be informed by science. Now, because we know that, that, that the homosexual orientation is something someone is born with, not a choice they make, that science changes what we, how we understand the text. So, go, go to the, first, the next slide. I think I already just described that. Yeah, faith and science blend. That's what, I, that's what I'm talking about. Go to the next one. <clears throat> Another way we deal with this text, some privileged men, and I said this about another one earlier, um, often sought novelty and excess. Married heterosexual men oftentimes would use uh, uh, their slaves, male and female, for, for um, sexual behavior. Go to the next one. <clears throat> 
violent rape of powerless young men, including slaves. One scholar strongly believes that that's what Paul is writing about here, that there are these exceptionally privileged men who use young men, again, these are heterosexuals, okay? I want to be really clear about that, who use young men, sometimes slaves, but sometimes just men from a lower social caste for their own uh, particular uh, needs and desires. And then a fourth thing that, that some folks think Paul might be writing about. One more slide there. Writing against excess seen in Gaius Caligula, Caligula and, and Nero. Um, Gaius Caligula was infamous for raping the wives of his male guests. He was infamous for raping young boys. He was infamous for raping um, slaves on a, on a regular basis. Um, Julie told me not to say this, but I'm going to say it. Do you know how he was killed? A spear was run through his genitals. I'll, I'll let you fill in the, le- the rest of that. Um, you can, you can kind of groan on it a little bit. See, see they didn't react too bad to it. To it. Um, N- Nero, similar to, to Caligula. Essentially what Paul is writing when he uses this word here in, in Romans chapter 1 is these behaviors are abhorrent. These, these are not about... So, so, th- so think about it this way. This, is, this comes right out of, of, of Gushy's book. What do these texts have to say, now that you know what there's, what's really going on here, what do these texts have to say to that kind, sweet, gracious lesbian couple in our congregation who volunteers in the Sunday school program, who go on mission trips, who serve the poor uh, meals uh, during, during the week, serve the hungry meals during the week, they, they tithe, they are in worship every Sunday. What do these texts have to do with that couple? Zero. Not one single thing. This is where my friend Adam Hamilton changed. About 10 or 15 years ago, he began to notice in his big Methodist church in Kansas City that there were gay couples and lesbian couples who were committed and loyal to each other, who were in worship every week. They gave to their church. They volunteered. They served the community. They were respected in their various jobs. And Adam started to say, without even getting into this research, how can those people be going to hell when they're some of the finest people I've ever encountered, period. They're in a loving, kind, caring relationship. And these texts have nothing to do with those folks. Okay, that's a lot of heavy stuff. So just one more slide here. Um, there you go. <laughs> the, poor little, the poor little puppy's kind of in there too going like, hey, can we stop this now? You know, <laughs> can we just get some kibbles and bits and go chase the tennis ball and, and all of that? All right, it's 7.53. I wanted to save some time for, for questions if you've got them. Um, so if you do have a question, uh, I'd be happy to take it. But I, I do want to... Uh, after you ask the question, I want to repeat it so our folks who are watching online, we got some feedback last week that they couldn't hear the question, so I want to, I want to be sure I repeat your question. Any questions that are out there this evening? When, when did the term sodomy come in? When did the term sodomy come in? It was about 1100, about 1100 A.D., about 1100 A.D. So, so when we read, like, the passage from the Corinthians where you used the term sodomy. Sodomite, right. That's plugged in later. That word did not exist in, in Paul's time, right? Okay. That word didn't. Now, the practice of that behavior, sure, but not that word, right? And see, that's, that's part of the thing that's, that's amazing about this. Um, when you really dig deeper into the Bible, you start to discover these, all these multi-layers of, of meaning and understanding and context. And, and it, you know, the, the thing I say this all the time is you got to ask yourself when you encounter a text, what's the particular context? 
What, who's the author? When was it written? Who was it written to? What's going on around them in the world in history at that point? You know, these are, these all, these are all, all part of understanding what's going on in the text. Um, too much of the arguments against um, same gender uh, loving relationships is based on picking a text, picking a text, picking a text, and then kind of meshing them all together and say, well, see, it's really clear. When you, when you look at them at a deeper level, you just can't, you just can't get to that kind of clarity. It's, it doesn't exist. So that, thank you. Please. Okay. Yeah. So the, 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 the I, I thought this was pretty succinct. Um, <laughs> the, sorry. The question. The question from Rebecca was. Um, uh, uh, if folks are generally with us, et cetera. What's the best way to, um, in a nutshell, in a succinct way, uh, explain your view? Here's. Honestly, I made it kind of a joke, but I, I, I kind of think there's some truth to it. I think it's difficult to come up with an elevator speech. I think it's important to listen to the other, to hear their background, hear their understanding, um, hear what's going on in them. Um, I try to ask a lot of questions. I try to, I try to add, you know, piece. Okay, for example, you know, if somebody quotes um, Leviticus 20:13, uh, and it includes the death penalty for same-sex behavior, you know, I, I think it's a fair question. And they may have a, a really good answer to that, but that, that creates a conversation. Um, I got into a, a conversation online on Facebook, I don't know, a month or so ago, maybe two months ago, and, and finally asked the person, let's just take this offline and into private messaging. Um, uh, he was coming at me pretty hard, and I was trying to be as, as, as gentle as I could be while still being firm in my, in my position. Um, I got a note from somebody who's a Facebook friend who is not out to his family or his friends, who's like 25, this makes me emotional, he's like 25 years old, and he said, thank you. I wasn't sure where you and your church were on this issue, and I, I, I feel so much safer now coming to, the, to your church. Um, I mean, so, so you know, I, don't, I don't want to just clobber the guy that I was arguing with. I didn't want to say, look, you know, you ignorant, you should, I, I wanted to op open up a conversation. So I don't really, it's hard to be succinct. I do think, and this is where I go oftentimes, at least to start with, is I do say science has demonstrated that the issues talked about in the Old Testament or the New Testament uh, or homosexuality is not a choice. It's not an option. It is an orientation that comes at birth. So I, I, I and that's, maybe that's not the best answer, Rebecca, but I think it really begins in conversation. Um, most of the people that I, honestly that I talk to, they're not interested in conversation. It's a done deal. It's it's a done deal. Although I, let me let me let me correct that. Though. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, and this is from Gushy's book. He's noticed. I've noticed, especially within the evangelical community, hardline fundamentalists. It's hard to have a conversation. But within the conservative evangelical Christians, there is a movement toward. Okay, maybe we're being a little bit harsh. Maybe we ought to think about this more. And so there, there are some conversations that are starting and there are, there are some, um, some fine pastors out there, all the male of course, um, uh, who are beginning to at least allow the conversations to happen in their churches. So I, I think that's a good sign that there are some folks that are willing to, to, to change and, and consider the other point of view. Um, another thing to point out though, <clears throat> if you're a member of a Greek Orthodox church, and you go up to a Greek Orthodox priest and say, can I be gay and be a member of your church? What's he going to say? Are you baptized? 
you know, uh, the, the church is made up of the baptized. Uh, um, now, they don't, you, women can't come be priests, and there's, there's a whole other things that we can talk about the Greek, Greek Orthodox Church. Um, for a long time, this wasn't a question. In, in um, Northern California, I think it was the 1970s, in the Disciples of Christ denomination, when this first came up, there was a man um, who was a pastor who was going through the ordination, pro or was becoming a pastor, going through the ordination process, and he uh, said to his committee, I knew, I'm just going to tell you, I'm gay. And I'm not going to hide that anymore. So that became this huge, gigantic issue. And so then there was this vote. It was this really, I'm, I'm probably not going to get it exactly right, but the vote was, you know, can you be, uh, can we make, we should make uh, whether or not one is homosexual as a test of their, of their fitness for, for ordination, something along those lines. And the argument back was, do we ask if they're heterosexual before we ordain them? You know, are you a heterosexual, Glenn? Well, uh, let me check. Um, yeah, I think so. I, it's, uh, so this, this question is just, it's, it's really forced us to theologically and ecclesiastically um, dig deep. So that, that would be where I'd start was with the conversation. And, and hear the person out. Um, hear, what's, hear what's going on. <laughs> Ask them if they want shrimp. If they say yes, say uh, no more conversation. Good, good question, though. Any, any other, other questions? But a judge, Mayor, Mayor Pete. Pete. Mayor okay. Pete, yeah. If, if you Google him just within the past day or two, he came out with a pronouncement. This is not political. This is about who he is as a gay person. And when I heard it, uh, I, I, I just emotionally was overtaken by what he said. And I would, I would encourage you to, to Google that. Hey, he's talking about Mayor Pete, uh, who made a great statement on his, on his own faith. And, and let me be clear, uh, Julie and I have a good friend, a uh, couple uh, in, in Kansas City, a uh, gay couple, who uh, he, one of them's Democrat and one of them's Republican, um, you know, and, and makes for interesting conversations, as it would for any couple, that one, where one was Republican and, and one, one was Democrat. So um, that, that kind of goes across the political spectrum as far as that, that goes too. Stand up. Let's have a prayer. By the way, thank you very much for coming out tonight. Thank you for coming to these to these sessions. Um, I, I really enjoy this this time with you all. It's it's um, uh, there are, there are three times when or maybe four when I really feel like a pastor. Uh, one is when I'm with somebody at the time of a death. Uh, two is when I'm with somebody at the time of a birth or dedicating or baptizing their baby. Uh, three is is any time I'm doing a wedding, and four is any time I'm doing serious hard Bible study. And I, so thank you for. Uh, letting me practice uh, my, my pastoral um, uh, uh, calling uh, with, with all of you. Let's say a prayer. Thank you, God, for this evening, for this beautiful night, for the power of your story, one that begins with the words, very good, and ends with the words, all shall be made new. Help us as your children to allow that arc, that direction, that story be ours too, knowing that as, as difficult and as dark as it may feel at times, you are still pushing the universe, all of us, toward the goodness of a new creation. Amen.